Some names really fit, such as the shop in Alameda, California that sells maternity clothes. It's called Fashion After Passion. That really fits. There's a fast food Indian restaurant in New York City called Curry in a Hurry. I think that's also an appropriate name. But the name Peter was one name that just didn't seem to fit. Petros means rock. And yet the disciple of Jesus that we know as Peter was anything but a rock. He was more like shifting sand. Peter was impulsive and inconsistent and insensitive. Peter was unstable, not very rock-like. And yet Jesus named Peter, not after what he was at the time he received his name, but after what he would become once transformed by the Holy Spirit and by the Savior. You see, two events turned a shifty Simon into powerhouse Pete. First, on the day of Pentecost, a fearful Peter was endued, infused with power from on high. Once he was filled with the Holy Spirit, from that day onward, he preached God's word with boldness. Peter received power at Pentecost, but also important, Peter received perspective at Calvary's cross. You see, before the cross, Peter believed in a Messiah who would reign and rule, not suffer and die. Peter was never more confused than that night when the king knelt down to wash his feet. I mean, it wasn't until after the resurrection that he realized that the path of God's glory runs through the humility of the cross. We reign with Jesus, but first we die to our pride and we become a servant. By the time Peter pens this epistle, that perspective had taken a firm hold on his life. This letter is a message of hope, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. We're actually not told when 1 Peter was written, but I believe it was penned while Peter was in prison in Rome, waiting his execution at the hands of Caesar Nero. In chapter 5, verse 13, he sends greetings from those in Babylon. It could be that Peter was in literal Babylon, but it's far more likely that he was speaking of the spiritual Babylon or the city of Rome, the capital of paganism and idolatry in the ancient world. We know that Peter and Paul were prison mates between the years 63 and 64 AD. This might explain why 1 Peter is so similar to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Having gone through the first chapter of Ephesians on Sunday morning, you'll see some similarities tonight when we move through 1 Peter. The two apostles may have even swapped notes and thoughts as they were writing their respective letters. We also know that Peter and Paul were executed about the same time, shortly after this imprisonment. There's no doubt, though, that when Peter wrote this letter, he knew death was on the horizon. And yet his eyes were fixed beyond the horizon to the glories of heaven itself. You know, we glean from this letter, if Paul was the apostle of faith, and if John was the apostle of love, then certainly Peter is the apostle of hope. He grew rock-like when he looked beyond this life, and he anchored his hopes in eternity. We begin 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
And from the book of Acts, we learn that the church, the early church, was a wartime baby. The church in Jerusalem was born in the midst of persecution and war, spiritual battles. Eventually, many of its believers dispersed into other parts of the world. And Peter is writing to those refugees. Remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the audience who witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were from Pontus and Cappadocia and Asia, as well as Phrygia and Pamphylia, cities of Galatia. And here, Galatia gets mentioned. Apparently, after Pentecost, many of these new believers may have stayed in Jerusalem to grow to their, in their faith. They got to know Peter before eventually returning home. And Peter never lost touch with these dear saints. Here he writes them this letter of encouragement to encourage them in their faith. Of course, Peter's also writing to us. Even if you've lived your whole life in one place, you're still a dispersed pilgrim. This world is not our home. Reminds me of the mom who was aboard a ship in the middle of the Atlantic. An angry storm tossed the ship back and forth, almost sunk the boat. But the woman exuded a calm, a strength in the midst of the storm. When the ordeal was over, the captain asked her the secret of her composure. She said, I've got two daughters. One lives in New York and the other lives in heaven. I knew I would see one of my girls in a few hours and it didn't really matter which one. That's a great perspective. We're all just pilgrims on a journey. We're merely passing through. Peter encourages these pilgrims. They may have given up their locality and certain earthly comforts to follow Jesus, but spiritual blessings transfer from place to place, and he lists them for them. Elect according to the knowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Notice the Trinity at work in their salvation. They were elected by the foreknowledge of God the Father. They were set aside by the Holy Spirit, and they were cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he greets them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Or literally, we've been born again. Recall the old saying, Born once, die twice. Born twice, die just once. In Christ, we have received a new birth, a spiritual birth. You see, we humans, we are a trichotomy. We're made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. You can think of us as a three-stroke engine. We've got three pistons, three cylinders, all firing together. But here's the problem. Most humans, they run on only two of those three cylinders. Our body is alive. Our soul, the mind, and the emotions is alive, but our spirit is dead. And thus we sputter and misfire and limp along in life. Yet when Jesus enters us, he quickens our dead spirit and he infuses in us his life. We're literally born again. Born this time, not of human birth, but of the Holy Spirit. And we are born again, he says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, the Italian poet Dante, in his divine comedy, he hangs a foreboding inscription over death's door. It reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. 
And death is, she does strip us of our hope. Death is the great spoiler. It separates lovers and creates orphans. Death slams the door on opportunity and causes vast potential to vanish, boom, like that. It cuts short the promise of a blissful future. Most of all, death chokes out hope. But as believers in Jesus, we can look death in the face and we can still retain a living hope. For our Lord Jesus has overcome death, hell, and the grave. When Jesus rolled away that stone and exited the grave, never to die again, he resurrected hope for all people. Through the triumph of Jesus, all his followers now have the hope of sharing in his supernatural life. We've been born again, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You know, an earthly inheritance can be lost, or it can lose its luster or its value. It's corruptible. It can be tainted and defiled. It can, it can fade away. There are no guarantees with earthly treasure, whereas God's blessings are permanent and priceless. And there is such an inheritance in heaven right now with your name on it waiting for you. Your inheritance is under lock and key. It is reserved in heaven for you. What a great hope that is. He says, for you yourself are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You yourself are kept by God's power. I remember when the kids were little, they, they would always ask me, they would say, Daddy, will you hold this for me? I was always holding something for one of my kids. It might have been their money or their baseball glove or their jacket or their Bible. But, Daddy, will you hold this for me? It was an item that they didn't want to lose. And so they trusted it to their dad. And you see, you are an item that God doesn't want to lose. So much so, he promises to keep you, to hold on to you. Believe in Jesus and God keeps you in his pocket. That's a good place to be. And then we're told in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, from the beginning, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But his concept of what Messiah had be, or what Messiah would become was transformed by the cross of Calvary. Yes, one day Messiah will reign and rule. He'll reign in glory. But there's a grieving that comes before the glory. There is a suffering that comes before the salvation. There is a cross that precedes the crown. Faith has to be tried in order to be refined. And you too are like this precious gold. The refiner, he turns up the heat. He melts down the metal. He picks out the impurities. And this is how God works in our lives. He turns up the heat of hardship. And he melts our pride and our self-sufficiency. And then he picks out from our life the impurities. And how does the goldsmith know that the gold has been properly refined? Well, I'll tell you, it's when he can see his reflection on the surface of the metal. 
And likewise, Jesus knows that we've been adequately refined in the fire of trials when there is a Christ-likeness that begins to surface in our lives. Here's the analogy set to poetry. Listen closely as the author describes the refiner's work. He sat by a furnace of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore and closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test and he wanted the finest of gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear set with gems of a price untold. So he laid out gold in the burning fire though we wanted his hand to stay and he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright but our eyes were so dim with tears We saw the fire, not the master's hand, and we questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent over the fire, though unseen by us, with looks of ineffable love. Can we think it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment of pain? Ah, no, but we saw through the present loss the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is so strong and sure, and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Now moved by that last line. Let me repeat it. His gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Perhaps tonight you're in that crucible of trial and tribulation. And the genuineness of your faith is being tested. Sure, you'll serve God when he blesses. Oh, when he makes your life great and makes you feel good. Who wouldn't? But what happens in the heat of adversity? How genuine is your faith in the fire? How sincere is your commitment under trial? Hey, his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. God will only allow what's needed to accomplish his purposes in you. And then Peter continues in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. (laughs) It was a young man's first day in his college science class. The professor walked in and he said, Everybody who believes in Christ, please stand up. Well, this one young boy, he stood up. The professor continued. He shouted at him. He said, Can you... Feel and see and smell and taste your God? The kid replied, no, sir. He snarled again. He said, then it's obvious you can sit down because your God doesn't exist. But the boy was unmoved. He responded. He said, may I ask you something? Can you feel and smell and taste and hear and see your brain? The teacher said, of course not. And the young man answered, well, then you can sit down because your brain does not exist. (laughs) Hey, the point is we all believe in realities that we cannot see, that we can't relate to with our five senses. Love and loyalty are invisible realities, and yet we all believe they exist. And likewise with Jesus, we can't relate to him tangibly or physically, but we can sense his presence in our heart. We can know his love in our lives, and we can love him in return. It was Helen Keller who said, The best and most beautiful things in life can't be seen or even touched, 
They must be felt with the heart. This is true with spiritual realities. He says, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The heart of faith fills up with joy and glory. Ah, the vistas that open up to the soul who looks at life through eyes of faith. A bubbling, splashing, abounding joy streams into our hearts. An indescribable joy. A joy that refuses to be reduced to words surrounds the heart of faith. Joy and glory, love and laughter, wonder and worship belong to everyone who really and truly believes. It may just be me, but I like to think of the believer's soul as a chocolate-dipped ice cream cone at the Dairy Queen, the rich ice cream of joy stacked high and covered with rich, creamy, chewy chocolate glory. How's that for a joy indescribable? Verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, the New Testament speaks of salvation in different phases. We touched on that this morning with redemption. You know, when you embrace Christ as Lord, you are saved from the penalty of sin. But then as you grow in Christ, by His Spirit, you're saved from the power of sin. And then one day, when you enter the glories of heaven, you'll be saved from this wicked world and the presence of sin. We're saved from its penalty and then its power and then its presence. But at every stage of salvation, we're saved the same way, by grace through faith. This is why it's so essential to continue in our faith. Faith is not a one-time proposition. Faith is a mindset that we need to cultivate and grow and develop. And then in verse 10, we're told, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In in other words, What the Hebrew prophet said about the Messiah in the Old Testament and what the ministers of the gospel have said about Jesus in the New Testament are in perfect harmony with each other. There's no contradiction in the message. The gospel of grace is not a man-made invention. It's a Holy Spirit-sent revelation. And then Peter tells us that the gospel reveals truths, and I love this, which angels desire to look into. Did you know that the angels are intrigued with the implications of God's grace? I think the angels were absolutely stunned when their eternal king humbled himself and became a man. I think they were horrified when he allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross. In fact, for the last 2,000 years, the angels have been trying to understand the depth of God's love for these little mud daubers down on that dinky little planet called mankind. I imagine the angels to be a lot like Dr. Spock. You know, they're logical, they're non-emotive Vulcans or something similar. 
They're trying to fathom this divine emotion called love. They look into these things, wondering, scratching their heads, the depth of God's grace. These faithful messengers of God, they make it a favorite pastime to try and grasp why God would reach so low for wayward, rebellious, stubborn humans like you and me. They desire to look into, Peter says, the grace and mercy and kindness of God. And you know what I think? I think we would grow in grace and in our love for God. That our faith would get bolder if we adopted the same pastime. If we got just as interested in looking into this matter called grace. I don't think any of us have a thimble full of knowledge of just how much God loves us. How we need to look into these matters as well. And then in verse 13. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Pull up your bootstraps, buddy. Tighten up your belt. In other words, get serious about walking with Jesus. He says, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, and here Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, Be holy, for I am holy. Now remember that word holy. You remember what it means? It means to set aside. It means to reserve. Now sometimes we think of holy objects as relics with some supernatural quality to them. The Ark of the Covenant, or the Shroud of Turin, or the Holy Grail. But you see, any item can be holy simply by dedicating it to God. I can take the coffee mug that I refill every single morning. I can give that mug to God. And you know what it will become? It will become a holy mug. Likewise, people with people. We're holy not because we possess some supernatural quality or some spiritual capability. We become holy because our lives are reserved for God's purposes. That's what makes us holy. Look at my face tonight and guess what you see? You see a holy mug. You do? Yes, it's just a plain old mug on one hand, but it's God's mug. It's been dedicated to him. That's what makes it holy. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Christ we've been redeemed. We talked about that this morning. Again, I think maybe Peter and Paul were swapping notes. To us, this word redeemed is a religious word that we rarely associate with everyday life. But in the Roman world, you need to understand, this was the one word that sparked incredible hope in human hearts. The emperor's 60 million slaves went to bed at night dreaming of this idea of redemption. That somehow they could one day purchase their freedom 
Or maybe someone would come along and do it for them. A few gold coins was all it took to free a Roman slave. But freedom from sin is much, much, much more costly. It requires the precious blood of a perfect lamb. Our redemption has been paid for not by precious metals, but by the spotless, precious blood of Jesus Christ. He tells us in verse 20, For he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Jesus was foreordained for this purpose from before the foundation of the world, and then he was revealed so that we could have faith in God, so that we could know the love of God and in turn love one another. On the cross, the Lamb of God shed spotless blood, blood uncontaminated by sin. Thus, the people who are purchased and cleansed with that blood, they need to live uncontaminated lives. How can those that have been born again by such love fail to love each other? Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now, when you were born physical, physically, you were born of corruptible seed. From the moment you were born, you started to die. You don't realize that, but you do. From the moment you're born, you begin to die. A flower blooms, then it slowly fades away, and so does a human being. There's a Yiddish proverb, I'll read you. A grandmother becomes feeble. Her grown daughter gives her a wooden bowl that trembling hands cannot break. The old woman dies and the bowl is discarded, but the granddaughter retrieves it. The bowl, she knows, will be needed again. We're all going to fade and eventually die. You know, despite their many theories, scientists still don't understand the mystery of aging. They've noticed that normal human cells grown in tissue cultures, they reproduce for many generations. And then one day, inexplicably, mysteriously, they start to degenerate and they eventually die. It's as if human cells are pre-programmed to die. It's as if death were written into the fertilized egg by the genetic language. It's as if the human seed or cell processes have a built-in time clock that causes them to shut down at a predetermined point in that person's life. Well, the observation of the scientist only affirms the declaration of Scripture. For human seed is corruptible. It does deteriorate. It has been pre-programmed to die. The wages of sin is death. It deteriorates. Physically, you were born to die. But spiritually, you were born to live forever. For spiritually, you were born of incorruptible seed. The new birth results from corruptible seed. The new birth results not from corruptible seed. It results from incorruptible seed. He says, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Spiritual life occurs in the human heart when the word of God fertilizes a repentant faith. 
And since the word of God abides forever, the life that is produced by it is also a forever life or an eternal life. Verse 24 sums up chapter 1. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. One of the most powerful visuals I've ever seen occurred years ago at a funeral for a local pastor. After preaching this very forceful sermon, the officiating pastor, he walked down off the platform and he went to escort the body, you know, lead the procession out of the church and lead the casket out of the, out of the building. But as he walked by the casket, I'll never forget it, he reached over and he grabbed one of the flower petals from, that was sitting on the arrangement on top of the casket. He grabbed that flower and he ripped it off the, the arrangement. And he stood there in front of all of us and he, he crunched that flower up in his hand. And then he threw those petals down on the floor. And he quoted this verse. The glory of man like the flower fades, but God's word lasts forever. I'd suggest that we all build our life on God's word, not the glory of man. Well, chapter 2 begins. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Watch a little baby start to root when it comes feeding time. You know, its eyes may be closed. It might not even know that mom is near, but it's hungry. And all that matters now is that nipple. And so its little mouth starts searching eagerly and aggressively for mom's nourishment. And this is how diligent we as disciples need to be in our hunger for God's word. At feeding time, a baby puts everything else aside in roots. And that's how we need to be when it's time to feed spiritually. We need to lay aside all distractions. and We need to dig into God's word. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus was that living stone who was rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. There's a legend associated with Solomon's temple. I think Peter's referring to it here. That during its construction, the construction of that temple, the cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on site, the builders didn't recognize its importance and they tossed it aside. It wasn't until the structure was nearly complete and they needed the cornerstone that they realized their mistake and they raced to find the stone that they had earlier rejected. Indeed, this is how the builders of Judaism treated Jesus. They didn't realize that he was God's chief cornerstone. And so they rejected him. But one day, and I believe soon, the Jews will realize their mistake. They'll repent of their sin. And they'll run to Jesus the chosen of God, their chief cornerstone. Verse 5 says, but you also. Hey, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but you also are living stones. You're a little living stones, what you are. And you're being built up a spiritual house. The Old Testament temple stood on top of Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. But the New Testament temple is a spiritual house that's being made of living stones, you and me, the church. 
You and I have been fitted together and are being fitted together by the master stonemason Jesus as a house for the Holy Spirit to indwell. You know, the power of Christ sobers us. Some of us have gone from being stoned to becoming stones. <laughs> the Jewish temple had limestone walls. Christ's temple has live stone walls. Each of us has a role to play in the family of God. And so, don't be off the wall. Find your place on the wall. Be a part of the house that Jesus is building. We're told that we are also a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember, the Old Testament sacrifices were physical offerings, bulls and goats, complete with blood and gore. But the New Testament sacrifices are spiritual offerings of love and praise and devotion and kindness and giving. And at the top of the list of spiritual sacrifices is our body. Remember Romans 12 verse 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God to be transformed into the image of Christ. Hebrews 13 verses 15 to 16 also lists several more spiritual sacrifices. Our praise to God, our good deeds, our sharing financially are all spiritual sacrifices that we can make to God. The author of Hebrews makes that list and then he says, For such sacrifices God is well pleased. Verse 6, therefore it is also contained in the scripture. And here he quotes Isaiah 28 verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is that precious cornerstone. He's the chosen of God and he's solid. Rest on him and you'll never be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. And now he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he recalls Isaiah 8, verse 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then he concludes, They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. In these three verses, Peter uses three Old Testament quotes to sum up the Jews' rejection. In the words of their own prophets, they had rejected the Messiah. They had rejected Jesus. And as a result, they had been disobedient to God's word. God intended for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, the rock on which the rest of the house is built. But understand, Jesus is a big rock. He's a big rock. You can't ignore him. If you don't make him the foundation of your life, you'll always be stumbling over him. He's a big rock. You'll end up offended by him. That's why when it comes to Jesus, you either bow your knee or you break your toes. One of the two. He's a stone of stumbling and he's a rock of offense for those who have a rebellious heart, but to those who are obedient and those who love him, he is the chief cornerstone. And then we're told in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now remember in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. 
The two didn't mix. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Kings came from the tribe of Judah. But as believers in Jesus, we've become a royal priesthood. One day we'll reign and rule with Jesus. We'll be royalty. Today, we're building bridges between God and between our friends and people around us. We're priests of reconciliation. But we're also a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We were at one time vagabonds, strangers, alienated, just living life on our own. But now we've been brought into a family. We now have a group, a people group that we belong to. We now are the people of God. You know, there was a time in American history where we believed in cultural assimilation. We were called the great melting pot. Everyone blended together culturally. But today we're more a salad bowl. Cultural assimilation has given way to cultural accommodation. People today are taught to be proud of their racial or natural or ethnic identity. That means we're no longer just Americans. Everybody today has a hyphen. We're Irish Americans or Asian Americans or African Americans. But hey, of all people, this should be true of the Christian. We should be Christian Americans. We should love our Christian heritage. That should be our first identity. We should stand out in terms of values and character and the love we display. It should be decidedly Christian. Rather than blend in, our job is to stick out, to be different, to live out the priorities of heaven right here on earth. And we're told in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Boy, if we're to stick out, we've got to be careful that we don't get contaminated by the lusts of this world. Imagine preparing your kids for a professional portrait at Olin Mills Studios. I think they still have Olin Mills Studios. It's been a while since we got a professional portrait. But imagine preparing your kids for this momentous occasion. You bathe them, you shampoo them, you shower them. You even clean out their ears with a Q-tip. I mean, you give them the whole works. You fight to dress them in new stiff clothes. I mean, a mom deserves time and a half for such a job. You're finally ready to go, and you send the kids out to the car, and as the back door slams shut, you see little Junior sitting out there in the middle of a mud puddle just splashing and playing. How dare him? Couldn't he have kept himself away from the mud just long enough to make it to Olin Mills? Well, now you know how God feels. In Christ, we've been cleansed from sin. We've been clothed in righteousness, and we are headed to heaven. Can't we stay out of the mud just long enough to get into the car? Good grief. Peter tells us, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. You'll be accused unfairly in this world. But if you conduct yourself honorably in the end, God will be glorified in you. Spoken another way, if you take care of your character, then God will take care of your reputation. 
Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now here is the divine right of government. God established human government for two purposes, to punish evil and to encourage good. I read about a novel practice taken on by the police, a novel tactic that the police in South Windsor, Connecticut are now using. Traffic cops are pulling over cars and passing out tickets. But the tickets read, your driving was great and we appreciate it. The police have started passing out $2 rewards for obeying the speed limit and wearing seat belts and using turn signals and using proper child restraints. A resident of South Windsor writes this, you're always nervous when you see the police lights come on. It takes a second or two to adjust to the officer saying, thanks a lot for obeying the law. It's about the last thing you'd expect. We expect government to punish evil, but we often don't expect it to reward good. And yet, the police in South Windsor are being biblical. He goes on, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In other words, Uncle Sam can use some Christian brothers. And we need to live a practical holiness that shuts up the mouth of the cynic, that adds to the common good of society, that brings glory and honor to our Lord Jesus. And understand Peter's words here, to honor the king, not only apply to honorable kings, but to dishonorable kings as well. Hey, remember who the king was in Peter's day. He was waiting in a jail cell. He was about to be executed by this man, the Emperor Nero. And hey, if a Christian is supposed to honor Nero, then I would assume we're also supposed to honor President Obama. Even when you don't respect the person, you can respect the position. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. A servant, or we could say an employee who comes to Christ needs to be good, as good as a servant can be, regardless of what kind of boss rules over him. Hey, God changes our circumstances by changing us. This this is what we need to believe. That God changes our circumstances by changing us. Perhaps your world needs some more sweetness. That's why he puts you in it. And then he uses you to spread that sweetness around. He says, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In a fallen world, children of God often get a raw deal. Stay true to a biblically informed conscience. And it could put you at odds with the values of this world. It could. Suffering for what's right and good can happen. For what credit is it if, 
When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who suffer because they acted like a jerk. I know some self-righteous, unloving Christians who get laughed at for their hypocrisy. And then they stick out their chest and claim they're being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, they're not. They act like they're living like a martyr. In reality, they're a mockery. Hey, rejoice if you're being persecuted for good and for faith. Repent if you're being hassled because you're a snob or a hypocrite. That's what Peter's telling us. And then in verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate example on how to handle suffering. He let the rage end with him. You see, this world is great at swapping insult for insult. You get slapped at work, and so you come home and you slap the kids, and then they go out and slap the neighbor's kids, and the whole wide world is just plain slap happy. Hatred passes from person to person to person until it comes to the Christian. We should be the shock absorbers. We've been called to imitate Jesus. When he was reviled, he refused to revile in return. When he was slapped, he didn't slap back. He returned love for hate. And as his disciples, we should do the same. The weak have to retaliate. But those who are truly strong can absorb a blow and can transform its impact into the opposite response. We need to learn to retaliate against evil with good. And Jesus, in verse 24, we're told of Jesus that himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness By whose stripes you were healed. We hear a lot of talk these days about self-help programs. About 12-step approaches. But you need to know that God has a one-step plan for dealing with sin. It's called the cross. On Calvary's cross, God put an end to sin. Jesus bore our sin in his own body. He paid sin's penalty and he conquered sin's power. And in Christ, sin has been snuffed out. Thus now that I'm in Christ, I too am dead to sin. Sin has been snuffed out in the innermost part of me, the spiritual part of me that's connected to Christ. I can now see myself as pure and spotless. My spirit is alive in Christ and dead to sin. And as I believe that truth, a desire for righteousness and holiness begins to swell up in me. He says, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. (laughs) Sheep are so dumb. 
Sheep are so dumb, they'll follow each other off a cliff if you don't stop them. And you know what? We're sort of like dumb sheep, aren't we? We were constantly losing our way and going astray until Jesus, the good shepherd, rescued us from the brink of destruction and brought us back into his fold. In conclusion, let me ask you tonight, can you name the only man-made thing in heaven? The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars that Jesus bears in his own body. That sums up the value of our good works. We nailed Jesus to a tree, history's ultimate tragedy, and yet ironically, God uses it to engineer his greatest blessing, his pardon, his healing, his redemption, his new life. Hey, from one dumb sheep to another, Christianity's not a bad deal. Jesus does all the work in life and in death, and all we do is trust in what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen. And there's 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2.